talk about acoustics? Yeah, let's talk some about acoustics. Hi, this is Crawford Wiley, an organist in Wabatosa, Wisconsin, just outside of Milwaukee. And this is Sarah Bariza, a researcher and church musician living in Cincinnati, Ohio. This is Music and the Church. Today we're talking with Dr. Mark Porter about his new book, Contemporary Worship Music and Everyday Musical Lives. It's an exploration of the worship music used at a large church in Oxford, England, and why worshipers listen to, or in many cases don't listen to, worship music outside of church services. But first, this week's Try This at Church. This week's tip comes from D.A. Bates, who's the choir director at Desert Chapel United Methodist Church in Arizona. And he says that he does a recruitment campaign during Advent for his choir. He says, I lengthen rehearsals during Advent from 1.5 hours to 2 hours. The first hour, we work on service music. The second, we work on Christmas Eve, Christmas Day music, and invite the newcomers for the second hour. It is a low-pressure and low-commitment way to get more people into the loft for the holidays. And the past three years, I have done this. I have had three to four members join who would not have otherwise done so. And then later, he said that he also does this at Easter. I think this is just a great way, not just to get people into the choir long-term, but to welcome folks who can't make a long-term commitment. You don't want to have a babysitter every week. You just don't have the time to do it every week. And it's also a great way just to beef up your choir for days of the year when a fair number of people are traveling. Yeah, this is a really great idea. I've had a number of people, when I tried to recruit them for the choir during the rest of the year, mention that they couldn't commit to you know the regular schedule mm-hmm. of rehearsals. Yeah but that singing around Christmas time or just around Easter time is something that they would really consider doing. And like you said, because other people are going to be gone, you know, visiting mm-hmm. their family over the holidays, it's a really good way to beef up your choir numbers a little bit and also to give people who would like to sing with the choir but can't make that time commitment for the entire year an opportunity to join. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Do you have a tip to try at church? Share it with other listeners by emailing us at musicandthechurch at gmail.com or leave a voicemail at 513-580-4282. Next up for this week's In the Field segment, Crawford and I discuss how a church building's acoustics can influence the music people make there. Then we'll hear from Dr. Mark Porter. One thing that I think about a lot, actually, I think about the terms live and dead as they refer to church spaces. I just want to unpack those terms a little bit because we say that, you know, a room with echo or hard surfaces generally is a live room. Who wouldn't want something that's live as opposed to something that's dead? But in fact, a dead room is really what you want if you're going for amplified music. Because you don't want all of that sound swimming around uncontrollably. I'm wondering, what is it that is a more helpful way for us to think about rooms in terms of their acoustical properties? Well, for me, the whole issue is thinking about what kinds of styles do you want and what kind of space do you have? And then you start to think, does the kind of music that we want fit the space that we have? And if not, do we want to change or do we want to change the room? Or do we want to just have an acoustic space that doesn't really work? Those are your options there. If you have the money, you can do a lot with the space that you have to change the acoustics. And I'm thinking of Duke Chapel at Duke University, where I was for several years. Like, they literally coated the walls to change the acoustics. And it was built in, like, the 20s, and they changed the coating on the walls in the 70s. They were installing an organ, and the organ builder said, I will not install this organ unless you change the walls. And, you know, it's a concrete building, and they coated the walls, and now it's a wonderful acoustic space for organ. But it's a terrible acoustic space for, say, the spoken word without the speaker 
speaker system. Yeah, but they, they do have a speaker system, which wasn't the case back in the 1920s when it was built. Right, which is why they chose that particular acoustic when the building was built. So I guess that emphasizes what we're discussing, that different purposes require different acoustics if they didn't have a state-of-the-art sound system. That is the single biggest change to acoustics now, is that you can have a live room and hear the spoken yes. word clearly. Because in the past, it was kind of an either-or. And I have a blog post that I'll link to talking about the history of church acoustics. And if you have a service where it's not necessarily important that a congregate understand the words... As opposed to a sermon-centric worship experience. With the Protestant Reformation, you're getting curtains, elevated pulpits... So that you can understand the sermon in these acoustic spaces. And then with churches that are being built new, there's a really interesting book, How Early America Sounded by Richard Cullen Rath. I'll link to it in the show notes. He's talking about new building in in, uh, the colonies and how the different shapes of buildings, the materials that they were made out of reflected the theological priorities. So how Quaker buildings might be a hexagon or an octagon with a low roof so that you could all hear each other. Or other buildings that were really tall so that you could have this wonderful reverberate congregational singing. And because because of the elevated pulpit, you could also hear the sermon. Oh, right. Like Christopher Wren's London churches are classical preaching barns, essentially. You know, they're they're designed for the spoken word from the pulpit, you know, to be audible. But it's not like they're also terrible for music. Oh, right. Like, it's not like an either or. You must have a reverberant space for unamplified music, or you must have... Yes, yes. Spaces you know, can be sympathetic to both, I think. Even without the amplification, because once you add in the possibility of electronic amplification, there's a lot that you can do that you couldn't prior to that. So I guess a question that I have is what sorts of music, because I think as church musicians who are both trained organists, we've both come of age in a world that distinctly privileges acoustical settings with a lot of reverberation and the sound of large pipe organs filling those spaces. And so a lot of us get our training accustomed to thinking of the sound of a good church and a good church organ as a very, very reverberant space with a really large roaring instrument in that space. And then being disappointed if you have a small room or a dry room, a dead room. But what are some of the beautiful sounds that you can hear in a more intimate acoustic? Yes, you can hear the plucked strings of a guitar. You can hear a smaller voice. And I think in a smaller, more intimate space, a space where where you don't have a lot of echo, where where you can hear voices with clarity, you might want to think of that as a special opportunity to privilege music that rewards listening to that intimate play between voices. I'm thinking specifically as an organist of, you know, Frescobaldi toccatas. But I think this would also be true of having folk instruments in your worship music. I remember once hearing a large ensemble of largely folk instruments. There were a few electric instruments uh, in a worship service in a very, very reverberant space. And it was it was not ideal. <laughs> the Because you, you lost yeah, was, all of the detail of, of the delicate plucking that was going on, and all you could hear was this wash of sound. You know, I think that's one of the tricky things of um, drums, because in a live space, you lose the precision, which is one of the points of having that you kind of You lose the drum. control of the decay as well, because the drum, the sound, just washes over everything. But at the same time, if you're in a smaller place, you may end up with a drum uh, with a shield around it, just 
just to control the volume, you might even have to go with um, an electronic drum set so you can really control the volume because if you're in a really small space, you're going to break people's ears. I'm thinking noise. also of vocal techniques, even. Whether someone's used to singing with a microphone right. or not. Like if you have a very large reverberant room, having someone singing full throatedly into a microphone can be a very overbearing experience. Whereas if you have a room where you're creating the acoustics, you know, through a mixing board, you can hear every breath of the singer, you can hear all of their vocal inflections. There's a lot of artistry that goes into that. Yeah, it's not something that's unconsidered. And I think that to use the term a dead room to describe a room in which that sort of artistic sensibility is possible is just unfair and it's not it's not helpful either. So if we're thinking about blended worship, which is generally this broad idea that you're going to somehow combine traditional hymnody and contemporary worship, but basically if we're taking this idea of doing multiple and diverse styles in the same space, what are ways to approach that so that you aren't having muffled words that you can't hear and so that you aren't disrespecting the music that you have? Like, because you want the music to shine, you want it to sound good in the space that it's in. Right. No, I think that's really important. I remember once singing the Gregorian chant propers for a Latin mass in a very, very small chapel and wishing that we were taking the tempos a little bit faster because when you have these long pauses in between phrases of the chant in a reverberant room, that would be a way of experiencing the beauty of the music. But in a smaller, more intimate acoustic, it just... It just dies. I mean, it's use that metaphor dead again, but literally the sound is yes. gone. And so I think one thing to consider is that you want to pick a tempo that helps you to feel the you're understanding where the music is coming from. Like, if you have a really reverberant room, you probably aren't going to want to do your tempos very quickly, especially if you have a guitar as your main instrument for something, because you'll lose so much of the clarity of the instrument if your tempo is really fast. Basically, like, you're losing what is beautiful about the composition and about the instrument. Right! We privilege the ideas of these sonic worlds in our minds, and we kind of carry them with us. We hear what we imagine this must sound like, but that's not really what we're actually hearing. It's tricky. So like, again, like thinking about, okay, so we're both organists and there's this impulse of like, well, I want to play this piece. I want to play that piece. Or thinking about it in terms of him accompanying and setting tempos. And I think, well, I want to be able to physically sing right. the whole yes. line, but maybe I shouldn't be taking the hymn that fast. And that's actually something I've, I've struggled with, like taking him slow enough in a really reverberant space because you just, you can't, you just have to think, well, you're going to take more breaths in this hymn. Yeah, it's fine. No one's going to judge you. <laughs> and if they are, or let the haters hate, you know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. If you're going to sing the hymn, do it right and don't obliterate right. the sound. You know, I think of something as specific as playing the piano in a reverberant space. And growing up in the Baptist tradition, I'm used to doing a lot of runs to keep the sound moving because, you know, largely Baptist hymn playing occurs in very dry rooms. There's not a lot of reverberation there. And so you want to mm -hmm. keep the yeah. sound moving. Whereas if you're playing a hymn accompaniment in a very reverberant space, that muddies the sound and eliminates the rhythmic precision that you want. You want people to know where the major beats are. And if you're a obscuring that with a lot of runs, you're actually doing the opposite of what you intend. This is reminding me of something I discovered in my dissertation research, which was that in these Baptist traditions where hymn accompaniment is piano-driven, 
piano led. A lot of the pianos were miked in larger churches. Oh, yeah. Because of that, the pianists were able to really restrain themselves. They were able to pare things down and do much simpler accompaniments, which was kind of the fresh new thing to be doing when I was doing my research because they were miked. They didn't have to do all those runs. They didn't have to do all those octave doublings because they were miked. Right. It was no longer necessary. Yeah. They could still lead even with a stripped down number of notes that they played. Yes. Yes. That's them responding to the acoustics that they have. Right. Which is really wise to listen to what you actually mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. rather than to what you imagine you want to have. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's actually what we're getting at, which is what do you have and what does it actually sound like and not the sound that you hear in your head. And sometimes you get spaces that are really the Goldilocks kind of spaces. And I, one of the churches that I currently work in, really the sanctuary is very much like that. It works for piano. It works for solo voice. It works for choir. It works for amplified music. It's, it's amazing. Oh yeah, that's like, those are the magical sweet spots. <laughs> Seriously, it's like a Goldilocks sanctuary. And you can hear the spoken word as long as someone will project. You don't even need to be mic'd necessarily. Yeah, that's beautiful. There's any church building that you would want to do a blended service in, well, that is the building. Right, right, because it's, it's hospitable to so many different kinds of musical experience. Today's interview is with Dr. Mark Porter, and he's the author of Contemporary Worship Music and Everyday Musical Lives. We'll have a link to the book in our show notes, musicinthechurch.com slash blog slash episode four. Mark is speaking with us from Germany, where he is a postdoctoral fellow. Mark started out with a question. Contemporary worship music is often seen as something that people should listen to or do listen to all through their daily lives. And of course, many people do use music in this way. But he wondered, what is the relationship between what people listen to in everyday life and their worshiping on the weekend? Here's Mark giving us an overview of his book. This book comes out of my own experiences as a church musician, initially as a church organist and then in a contemporary worship music setting and then as director of music for a church. And as I went on this journey through these different environments, I went through different experiences myself and then I started grappling with other people's experiences as well. Initially, it was as a classical musician coming into a setting which uses contemporary worship music, which uses rock or soft rock, however you want to describe this sort of Christianized version of it. And that was initially both a powerful and an odd experience for me. I'd never grown up listening to this kind of music or really playing that much of it either. But I found it really powerful. But I also sometimes had slightly mixed feelings about it. I'd been trained as a classical musician and had certain ways of evaluating music that I'd learned to internalize and it was slightly uncomfortable against some of those. So when I took over as director of music of a church in London, I think around 2009, it really interested me that this was a church I was working with that used contemporary worship music as its main style. But most of the musicians there had quite mixed relationships with this style of music. There were some who really got on well with using it in the congregation, and there were some who just didn't know how to relate to it or had a lot of value judgments about it and found this a really tricky area of church life to navigate. And so within that setting, I was trying to work out what to do with that. 
there were two sort of poles of pressure, I guess. One coming from the church's historical background, which was in Holy Trinity Brompton, which was very much to use this style of contemporary worship music and to get people to try and experience it in a positive way, to use this to really open up their hearts, to express themselves before God, and to, I guess, to teach them how to worship in that tradition. And the other one was this sort of diversity of music and musicians that I had within my team and this desire to do some kind of justice to their experiences and their backgrounds and their passions. And so this played out in the church context in a bit of a tension within the leadership team between me and other members. So I I tended to go much more towards the direction of diversity, of a sort of multicultural model, wanting everyone to have a space for their voice to be heard. And the pressure came from other members of the team to really not do that so much and to get really stuck into this contemporary worship music style and to try and somehow persuade the rest of the musicians, the rest of the team to engage with that, to assimilate with this. And eventually that led to a sort of breakdown in relationships within the team and I ended up losing my job there. That was sort of what spurred the research and the question of how you make sense of this sort of dilemma. What are the dynamics that are going on in that kind of setting? Can we get beyond this sort of binary, everyone must learn to worship in this way or we must do justice to this sort of multicultural dynamic? And to be clear, you were wanting an actual stylistic diversity, not a binary between sacred art music or soft rock, right? Yeah, that's totally correct. This wasn't, this really wasn't a binary sort of dynamic, either we use sacred music or contemporary music. And I think often these debates in churches get framed in that kind of way, because that's a way I think a lot of struggles and battles in churches have happened. So When contemporary worship music as a genre was sort of introduced, it was introduced as an alternative to traditional sacred music. So you had people who were attached to existing ways of doing things, hymnody, liturgical music, and then you had the people coming in with guitars and drums. And that became a key battleground. Even though, of course, it's not like there are only two styles of music yeah, in the world. And that's true. And that's that. That's a really interesting sort of issue because that feels like a sort of problem that contemporary worship music has created for itself in a way. I mean, the way I see it is that when it got going, you have this initial impulse to really bring contemporary musical styles into Christian communities. And so initially, you have a lot of that used for evangelistic purposes to try and use those music to engage people outside the church but then they become a part of worship culture as well and really start snowballing in that arena so you have that initial impulse and then you have a process that begins and it begins to become its own thing and so you get this style of contemporary worship music arising and and continuing and I'm not sure you always get this interrogation going back to that initial impulse and asking are, are we really still connecting or engaging with the cultures around us in the ways that we want to because it's gone down its own path and society moves on but now it's its own thing and it's hard to think about that relationship again. And that's the big question you're working with. 
What's the relationship between music and church, and music and everyday life? Yeah, this is the big impulse behind contemporary worship music, that the music of church should in some way connect or relate to the music of everyday lives. This shouldn't be a separate musical realm because that sort of alienates people. We, we don't want to alienate people with traditional forms of sacred music that they don't have a clue about. We, we want to use what they're familiar with and let them find it in their church. And then that helps to foster a sort of relationship between devotional life in a church environment and, and people's devotional lives outside that arena. And you get a whole sort of worship music industry built around recordings and trying to bring this music back into everyday life. So you, you encounter it in a worship context and then you can listen to it in other environments too as it becomes part of your routine and that helps foster your relationship with God. But at St. Aldate's, that wasn't necessarily what you found. Many of the people you interviewed weren't using worship music in that kind of way. So with that in mind, can you tell us more about your project? The research project at St. Aldate's was really trying to delve into these questions. And so I interviewed around 40 people within the congregation. It's quite a large congregation, has three services on a Sunday, about a thousand people in all. And I was asking them essentially two questions. I was asking them, what music do you listen to or use in your everyday life? How do you think about that music? How do you experience it? And then on the other hand, how do you experience the music of the church? What does it mean to you? What does your worship experience on a Sunday look like? And I got them to tell me two sort of narratives about how these relationships had evolved over the course of their lives. And then we would talk a little bit about how those narratives related to each other. It was a very simple question and slightly artificial divide in some ways, but it really opened up some fascinating experiences and some things that I really found unexpected. The first thing I was expecting within this kind of church was that this would be quite a simple issue. I'd experienced all these tensions and sort of varied relationships with the music of the church in the London congregation and myself personally, but I always assumed that was something peculiar to people like me who are slight musical oddballs within a contemporary environment. Yeah, you have a really broad musical experience. You're like an organist, a saxophonist, a flutist. Yeah, that's true. Sort of rooted in a classical tradition, but it's evolved a lot over time. But so when I was talking to different people, I was really surprised by the range of experiences they had. And then I was also surprised by the range of ways in which they negotiated their relationship with the music of the church and just the diversity of different experiences they were having on a Sunday. It seemed that almost every person I talked to felt that they were doing something different when they were there on a Sunday in terms of the music, in terms of what it meant, in terms of how was working and what was valuable within it. And not just on a superficial level in terms of, oh, this is a musical style that I really like or I really hate, but on, on a really deep spiritual level, on a communal level, when they were talking about the music of the church and the music of their everyday lives, they were always talking about issues that at the center of their faith. I think Jeffrey Summit and his work on Jewish communities has written about this a little bit, but just constantly brushing up against this thing that when people are talking about the music of the church, they are talking about the central issues of their lives. 
So the people you interviewed are talking about what is central to their lives, but they didn't tell you that they listen to contemporary worship music all the time. In fact, quite a few people wanted it set apart from their everyday lives for various reasons. And I'm thinking here of one person who said she wanted to preserve boundaries in her listening to keep worship music more special. Yeah, so you're talking about Claire, I think. She talks about some specific disciplines that she engaged with because she was finding her musical life was becoming uh, much more fluid than was helpful for her. So she's a really musical person and was using music a lot in a range of different contexts in church just to listen to, I think, and process emotions as workout music in the gym and finding that there was too much spillover between these contexts and that she deliberately needed to introduce some more separate into her life so that these I'm not sure so much that the music of the church becomes special I'm not sure there was a sense that that music was more special than any others but just so that it's clear that each music has a distinct purpose and a distinct role. Can you tell us about this thing people mentioned where it's good if a gig feels like a church service but it's not good if a church service feels like a gig? So that that's, comes out of another of the people I interviewed I think that was Liz she was talking about these two contexts. So she, she goes to a lot of gigs and experiences a lot of live music, and that's an important part of her life. And she talks about, I guess, spiritual experiences in, in both these contexts. And she was talking about how in a gig you can have these spiritual experiences as part of the music, which feel almost like the kind of experience you would have in the church. And that was definitely a good thing for her to have that kind of experience in a gig setting. But it doesn't work quite the same way as it does in the church. So in the gig setting, she was talking about the focus and how the focus is very much on the specific musical things the musicians are doing on the stage when they use some kind of effects pedal that gives some kind of cool sound or they do some kind of interesting solo. You have this focus very much on these techniques, these special sounds that are coming up. And these things that really make you think, wow, that's that's doing something. And then you have the setting of the church. In the church setting, you, you, you get that kind of special sort of, I guess, transcendent experience that you find in the gig. But it doesn't arise in the same way. So if it happens in the church that you are really focusing on all these cool things that the musicians on the stage were doing, how they were manipulating the sound, how they were... I guess slightly showing off or whatever, that would be totally the wrong focus in that context for her. So you can have this crossover experience, but it has to work in different ways. And that's really interesting that it's this one-way directional transfer. When you were talking about not wanting to show off in church, that reminded me of the musicians you talked to who said they didn't want their music to be a distraction. Music is a distraction. The, the idea that what you're trying to do in worship on a Sunday is you're trying to express your authentic heart devotion to God. It's this core sort of spiritual act is what you're trying to produce. And so that's very much a sort of internalized act. Uh, and there's a danger that you can be distracted from it. And what can you be distracted from it by? By the musicians doing too much, by them doing something that's too interesting, of course, by people around you. I guess by anything that loosens this direct connection between you and God and introduces another element into the mix. It's a way of thinking that I struggle with myself in some ways, partly as a musician. Because you're, if you're a musician, often you have this feeling that your musical talents or gifts have somehow come from God. And that if you're doing something with those gifts, then you're glorifying God and that people should be able to glorify God along or with those. 
that's totally not what's going on here. So what's going on here is this idea that music is a neutral canvas on which your engagement with God can happen. And it shouldn't get in the way, it shouldn't distract, it should enable. But one of the questions I try to think about in the book is how do we get to this idea of music as a neutral canvas? As music that's something as something which isn't participating in this process, that if it becomes too much is going to become a problem. And I looked back to the worship wars, and it seemed to me that this is certainly a key place in which this ontology of music becomes solidified. So in the worship wars, you have the introduction of popular musical styles into a church environment, and you have opposition to that. And the opposition to that is often very much on moral or ethical grounds, that rock music is really problematic morally, particularly in terms of lifestyle and sex and drugs and this whole bodily culture around it. And so you have if you're, if you're going to argue that this music should be used in a church context, you've got to have an argument against that. And the argument is quite a simple one. It's that music or musical style is never inherently moral or ethical. And that it's simply the way that it's used which gives it these associations. And so we can take the music over into the church context as this morally neutral phenomenon which has none of these bad connotations and we can use it to glorify God. I think this is a key part of how this ontology of musical neutrality becomes solidified as a defense mechanism really against arguments that music is inherently good or evil. And it leads to these rather simplistic poles that either it's inherently good or evil or it's uh, nothing at all. This is the kind of thing which musicology really resists. We like this space of ambiguity somewhere in, in the middle. But context still matters. Exactly, yeah. This is the thing, of course. Music needs to be taken in context. It can't be reduced to its context. It definitely does something musical. How about we talk about a smaller issue? Can we talk about the term omnivorous? And I know that I'm taking a very different angle than you have in your book. You were talking about the term omnivorous in a scholarly context. But when I read the term, I was thinking of how it relates to the term blended, as in traditional contemporary and blended styles of worship music. And when I mentioned that to you, you said that blended isn't really a term used in the UK for a type of church service. Yeah, okay. Start with omnivorousness. So this is an idea which, or, or a metaphor, which is very much coming out of society more generally. It's, it's not a concept which is so used within churches when you think about music because it's an idea of consumption and we don't want to encourage the idea of consumption within churches. But the idea is very much that this is an increasingly common way of approaching music, that we pick and choose from a whole range of different contexts and different styles, and that um, certainly people with a high level of cultural capital tend to approach music in this way or say they approach music in this way, uh, partly as a booster status, but partly as a genuine way of engaging. And so blended, I think, is very much a term that is used for a certain model of worship in the States. I, I Tell me if I'm wrong, but the idea is to do with using hymnody and traditional worship alongside more contemporary styles and using them within the same event. Both ideas have similar challenges. And the challenge I find, particularly when I'm talking about omnivorousness, is there's this idea that you can approach all these musics 
in the same way and you can consume them in the same way. So if I'm using this music alongside another one, alongside another one, uh, perhaps on an iTunes playlist in shuffle mode or on Spotify, whatever, then the idea is perhaps that this can form a continuous listening experience. I've got my headphones on and there may be all these different things coming at me, but I can approach them alongside one another, listen to them in the same way. Uh, and the same with the idea of blended worship. The idea is that we can have these different styles alongside one another and they can be used to worship and that that can become quite easy and natural. But then we have the issue and the, the issue is of course that we don't engage with all kinds of music in the same way. At least when we get away from just having a pair of headphones on and experiencing them in the world. So if you go to a classical con concert, you're sitting there silently darkened room or these stereotypes trying to have this profound experience. If you go to a rock gig, you're standing up in a crowd, jumping up and down, you're experiencing something very different in terms of broader dynamics. And so there are, there are boundaries between these different contexts. The music is operating socially in different ways, bodily in different ways. And, and so there's a sense that by using these metaphors of omnivorousness or blended worship, you're trying to sort of smooth over those cracks. But there's also a certain sense in which perhaps that can be true. I mean, the, these musics aren't fixed in how we engage with them. So I can put together an event and I can bring together a range of different musics together if I think about it carefully, if I think about how I'm reworking them to use them in the setting, if I think about how they're recontextualized. But there, there are all these dynamics and boundary crossing which I have to engage with in order to do that. Part of what the key thesis of my book is that they, these aren't smooth and simple transitions. There are all these processes of negotiation that are constantly going on between different people's lives and the things that are happening in the congregation. And that happens on a musical level. And that really needs to be grappled with in community. And I, I don't think it's often grappled with enough. I mean, it's grappled with in the sense of having fights about it. And perhaps, the, I mean, the advantage perhaps of omnivorousness over the idea of blended worship is that we're broadening things out beyond two options. When you have just two options, it's very easy for things to become polarized between those two alternatives. And when you start bringing in this wider mix, this much more plural mix, then such oppositions become a lot less straightforward, right? It's not simply a matter of aligning yourself with one side or the other, but it becomes much more a function of the diversity that is present within that community and how it's functioning. To come back to thinking about distraction, can we talk about musicians minimizing their individuality to prevent distractions? From my viewpoint, that's taking away one of the beauties of the body of Christ, which is how diverse we are and unique we are with our different skill sets and abilities. I'm also thinking about how you talk about this idea of the lowest common denominator, which is that worship music needs to be, from my perspective, as bland as possible so as to reach as many people as it can. And in my American context, which is obviously different from the UK, what happens when you're losing individuality and going for the lowest common denominator is that you get a really watered-down music that's basically culturally white in its associations. Yeah, so lowest common denominator is a kind of critique that some of the people I talked to raised about contemporary worship music. It was a phrase that kept coming up in discussions. It's not my term, although I, I may or may not use it. And what they're talking about is simply that 
in order to become appealing to everyone and inoffensive to everyone, this worship music style becomes really bland and doesn't really do anything interesting and, and just becomes really boring in a sense, I guess. I mean, in some senses, they find that useful because it helps to bring together community. But of course, like you're saying, it brings together community in a certain kind of way. So I I would say the race issues are certainly more prominent in the states than in the UK. We tend to I think think about them slightly differently. But the the key is that in in taking this approach to music, in insisting that music is neutral, is appealing to everyone, you're erasing certain kinds of differences regarding identity, regarding the way people engage with the world, and that can become really problematic, right? In a in a community. So it's the way that neutrality is supposed to provide a space for everyone, but actually ends up marginalizing certain kinds of experience and certain kinds of people. And I think that's that is a really important issue here. That a certain approach to music leads to the suppression or non-engagement with certain kinds of issues that people are facing, and tries to hide certain kinds of experience. Sometimes successfully, sometimes not. I mean, in my book, I have three main chapters on different kinds of experiences, and two of those chapters are talking about fairly positive experiences, and the third one is talking about all the really problematic ones. And so, I think I even talk about one guy who talks about the need. Or the expectation that when he comes into this context, that he has to lay aside certain kinds of、uh, moral judgment that he might want to make elsewhere, right? Yes. Here, here's what he said. I'm, I'm reading from your book. I was incredibly upset over aspects of the running of the worship music and team two years ago. I mean, I'm never in my life as an adult, not in a relationship with another human being kind of setting, been so upset as I was with it. And the answer was, I had to disconnect myself from it. Because I cared so passionately about being part of it, speaking on behalf of the team, my problem is I've got an incredible, a very acute sense of right and wrong, even though sometimes I might not appear to. Like for me, racism, sexism, homophobia—all those things to me are just—they repulse me. And I think for me, I think that that's the sense of wrongness that gets me. Not always. Often it's actually because I feel other people shouldn't have to go through this. When I read that from this guy, the guy that you're calling Ben. It was just like, oh my word, that's he's erasing who he is in the body of Christ, or feeling like he has to. To me, it's his sense of justice isn't something that he should have to lay aside in order to be part of the worship team. Yeah, exactly. So he certainly has a sense of these important issues, and I mean, there there are areas of church life where the church would definitely want to engage with these kinds of questions of justice, of representation. And you you feel they are are really important to the life of the church, but there's a sense that when it comes to musical life of the church, these issues have to be laid to one side. The church just doesn't want these to be part of their thinking when it comes to music because they lead in a direction. I guess because again, almost that they could become distractions from the, this this idea that you you've got your heart and you're using your heart to praise and worship God. And so it's a really interesting tension. On the one hand, in this kind of situation, I want to sort of come down and tell the church, "Look, you need to engage with this. These these are not questions which can be left to one side." And then, on the other hand, there's this sense that okay, yes, the music and worship on a Sunday has 
a restricted remit. It's only meant to do certain kinds of things. We can't always bring all the issues into that place. And of course, different churches have different priorities and maybe some communities might be better at doing this than others. It's this sort of tension in me that says, okay, no church community can really worship in a way that addresses everything and that gets everything right. Every community is going to get some things right and some things are going to be pushed to the background. Or from a different angle, you could say that each local congregation has a different set of people, so it looks a little bit different. Yeah. And it's partly a question of how ambitious we want to be. Are we happy with a situation in which each church has a few strengths and a few weaknesses, and we balance those and everyone has to engage in the different trade-offs? Or is our vision of the church, and, and I mean theologically here, bigger than that? And Do we really actually believe that it's possible for most church communities to become something more? And I mean, what you believe there probably varies depending on denominational backgrounds. These are massive questions and <laughs> they're not ones I can even begin to answer really. But looking at the music and looking at the issues people face in the music begins to point towards them and begins to raise some really big theological issues. That was Dr. Mark Border discussing his new book, Contemporary Worship Music and Everyday Musical Lives. You can read more of Mark's work on his website, markporter.co.uk, and he has a number of articles freely available on his website. They are an excellent resource, and I hope you'll check them out. You can also follow Mark on Twitter at Mr. Mark Porter, which is spelled Mr. M-R, Mark, M-A-R-K, Porter, P-O-R-T-E-R. You can also see all of this information on our website, musicandthechurch.com, in the show notes. That's it for this week's episode of Music and the Church. Let us know what you think by emailing us at musicandthechurch at gmail.com or leaving a voicemail at 513-580-4282. Check out this week's show notes at musicandthechurch.com slash blog slash episode four.